Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We are your hosts, David O. And Eric V. Today we are joined by our guest, Aiden. How are you doing today? Hey, guys. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, yeah, man. man. Where are you from, Aiden? Uh, from Nottingham, England, originally. I live in uh, North Yorkshire now, but uh, yeah, from the land of Robbie Miller. Oh, nice. Nice. Awesome, man. Very cool. Well, uh, glad to have you from across the pond, man. Um, when were you first yeah. introduced to recovery? Um, well, I've been listening to um, a lot of your episodes uh, coming into this. And, uh, I, I guess it was about 14 years ago. Um, I decided that I had to make some changes to my life. I've been uh, you know, in the grips of drug addiction for uh, over 10 years. Um, and yeah, I, I'd made a decision in, in, in one moment to, to sort of try and uh, uh, you know go abstinent and stop do, doing drugs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know that's that's still happening 14 years on. Um, and there's many sort of different things that I've tried to do. Um, I, I'm more collection of, of sort of tries and fails and mm-hmm. things that sort of partly worked for me and things that, that didn't work for me. Um, so uh, I guess I'm still, I'm still on that journey, really. I'm still on that journey of uh, trying to find things to replace um, drugs in my life. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right. And you said you've been clean for 14 years? Yeah, yeah. All right, man. That's awesome. Well, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to you to share your story with us. So take it away. Um, I mean, I was thinking about where to start this. Um, I mean, really, I, I can remember being addicted to things uh, very early on in life. I was always um, quite uh, impulsive. Um, so, you know, my my life uh, had a lot of complications in it. You know, I came uh, the youngest of four kids. Mm-hmm. My parents got divorced when I was um, sort of four years old. Um, I dropped out of school when I was about... 11 years old. Wow. Um, I had an undiagnosed learning difficulty, dyslexia, um, which nowadays I like to hear people refer to that as a learning difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's much nicer way of putting it, and, and I relate to that. Um, so I dropped out of school and didn't have any sort of formal education. I had a big lack of structure in my life. Um, and really, I was kind of in a lot of emotional pain I didn't really know who I was I was going through normal teenage angst in that identity crisis but um, uh, growing up in my life I wouldn't say I was neglected but um, my parents weren't necessarily uh, on their A game <laughs> for yeah. my childhood um, and I kind of uh, was left to my own devices a lot um, and I, I was thinking I was about 12 years old maybe and it was around Christmas time my mum had brought some alcohol um, into the house and um, everyone had gone out of the house for some reason I was was on my own in the house Mm -hmm. and there was a a four pack of Budweiser beer and um, you were drinking Budweiser in England? yeah Yeah. that's the import right? yeah that's a good shit yeah I guess that's an import (laughs) to you guys 
Yeah, um, yeah, that and we used to have Miller over here as well, which is quite big over there, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, uh, I'm sorry uh, for I, that. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that you have to try and then move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's what I did with that the alcohol, really. There was four bottles of beer, and I remember trying one. I remember getting about halfway through the first one and thinking, I really like this. Mm-hmm. And I drank all four bottles in about an hour. I can remember my mum coming home and sort of saying, you know, fuck, you, you know, what are you doing? You're 12, you've drunk four beers. And I was just like, yeah, that's, that's something I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, so a bit of sloppy parenting and she's really giving me a consequence. And I kind of, um, around that age, I started drinking a lot. I started sniffing glue. I started doing light fluid. I started doing pretty much anything I could get my hands on. Yeah. Um, because I, I loved the, the kind of escapism you know, getting out of my head, you know, changing my feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, when, you, when you're kind of young and you feel sort of uh, confused and unsure and you find that you can sort of change your, your your feeling and change your mood with these things, Yeah, you know, you're not thinking about the long-term effects, you're just thinking, this is great, I can just be someone else. Yeah. Um, so around kind of 12, I started the slippery slope really uh, over here in England, they call it poppers. Like it's like a sniffing sort of thing that gives you like a head rush. Mm-hmm. Um, but I seek that out, and then I guess not long after that, I started meeting people that were smoking weed, and I started smoking weed. And uh, you know, it's kind of true what they say that um, you know cannabis is a, a gateway drug because um, I got hooked on weed. Sort of almost instantly. Mm-hmm. I weed was amazing when I first smoked it. I was like, wow, you know, I, I can be creative and imaginative. Kind of, I can be a different person and I see the world in a different way when I'm smoking. So I like, had to have that all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then that introduces you to drug dealers yeah. um, in England. Um, so, you know, you're, you just want to literally sort of get into someone's house and, you know, hand them the money over, get the weed and go home to your bedroom and put your records on and smoke it mm-hmm. and have your high. <laughs> but, um, you know, drug dealers aren't that compliant. They also say things like, oh, you know, I haven't got this, you know, uh, have you tried this? Or, you know, I haven't got any mates, but someone I know might have some food. You start moving in these circles and sort of chasing things, mm-hmm. meeting people in associations. Within, within, so from the age of sort of 12 to... 13, I've gone from sort of being an amateur kind of trying to just get high and try and, um, you know, escape to being quite quite a sort of seasoned, sort of socially active drug user. Mm-hmm. I was using speed, I was using acid, um, and then uh, kind of moving on a few years to being sort of 15. Um, one of the things that I talk about in my podcast um you know i had a, a real crazy night and um, the night that princess diana uh, died and mm-hmm. um, she's coming up to uh i don't know how many years it is now i mean uh 1997 i think it was 97 uh, so yeah 22 years ago yeah so on that night um you know that was a real sort of peak moment for me i accidentally because I was an amateur, I thought that I'd scored um, some speed. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I could take sort of maybe three or four grams of speed and I'd mix that with coke and weed and acid. And, 
I absolutely loved doing ecstasy at the time as well. Um, and uh, I, I took uh, about uh, a gram and a half of what I didn't know was base amphetamine. And um, that's like shitload stronger, basically. Yeah. It's the equivalent of doing about six, six or seven grams of amphetamine. And I did it just by wrapping it up in a rizzler. And uh, I basically just had a complete sort of OD uh, in yeah. the middle of nowhere. Uh, I by a couple of friends. I ended up shitting myself by the side of the road, pissing my pants, uh, and kind of thinking I was going to die. Uh, and thankfully, an absolute act of kindness, this guy kind of found me and picked me up, took me back to his house and sort of made sure that I got home safely. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I suppose uh, intermixed in with, with all of my drug use, I had uh, unfortunate circumstances. Sort of being a, a teenage carer uh, for my mum, my mum had breast cancer. So um, my life was pretty complicated. I had a raging kind of cocaine addiction mm-hmm. um, where I was spending around, around £300, £350 a week on drugs. How, how are you 16. supporting this habit? How was I? Huh? How did you come up with all the money for this? Like at like such a young I, age? I was a hustler. I hear <laughs> um, you. I, I yeah. I, I mean, I it was commerce basically. I, what I figured out was there was a lot of people like me that wanted to do drugs, but didn't have the balls to go into drug dealers' houses. Oh. And so what I figured out was that I could kind of be a middleman, and I became a very effective kind of middleman. So I, I sort of I grouped about maybe fifty sort of sub customers. Mm. Um, and, you know, I used to do really dangerous things like I'd, I'd go to braids or go to clubs and I'd go with like 200 ecstasy tablets down my pants. Oh, my and then I'd spend the night sort of selling them in the club and that would pay for my use. And um, it's, it's kind of dangerous though when you're like that because you're everyone's friend and you've got to keep an eye out because there's always someone going to try and do you over or rob you or oh, yeah. claim that you gave them shit pills or... You know, or it's yeah. So I, I made a lot of it. I used to work kind of um, shitty, shitty jobs. I used to work nights mm-hmm. in factories and stuff, um, and I used to work in a, a service station. Uh, I, I basically addiction was a full time thing. You know, making money, sustaining yeah. the habit, totally, uh, and really only having probably maybe kind of four or five good hours of the week where I didn't actually worry about anything and I'd just get high and dance to music. Mm. Um, but as anyone knows, when you've been in the full grips of addiction, it's the first thing you think about in the morning, the last thing you think about at night, you know. The, mm-hmm. the last behaviour um, was, you know, smoking something or or taking something to knock me out and then waking up with that panic of like, shit, I've got to get up and do this over and over again. Um but when you're 15, you know, you don't really feel the effects that much. You just <laughs> roll with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, my mum uh, my mom died uh, when I was 17. Mm. Um, she died of breast cancer. And I'd managed to kind of suppress or, or sort of manage a lot of drugs out of my life. And I kind of, um, after she died, I went sort of, more back into it. Um, 
I, I think that's really, you know, when I think about it, I think that's where I got it's an English phrase, but I, I got stuck into them properly after my mum died because I was really messed up about that. And um, at that point in my life, I didn't have any kind of future plan or kind of idea of what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. So I just literally used to, um, I made my whole life about drugs, really, and scoring drugs, chasing people down, going in cars, text messages, and meeting up, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, constantly counting how much money I had and how much I owed, and, you know, trying to, like, eat and pay the rent and shit in between that as well. Yeah. But um, I guess, really, it came it came to a head. Uh, I just couldn't sustain it anymore. And, and in some ways, I feel really grateful. You know, some people don't have moments in their lives, you know. Um, I don't know what your guys' experience is like, but I I just, I had a very clear moment when I was like, fuck this shit, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And I had, it was like, I, there's loads of cheesy phrases you can throw at it, like um, a moment of truth or a moment of clarity, something like that. But I had a, a very deep profound moment when I was like, you know what, I, I cannot do this anymore. It's like I woke up. And it was like, you know what? I'm done with that. Um, it was very easy to, to say I'm done with it. But I think part of recovery is then the actual hard work starts once you've made that decision. Yeah. Uh, because you then have to live your life in it and sort of, it's like it's like trying to sort of get yourself out of a car crash, you know, and, and sort of, you're right, fuck, so I, I need to learn how to do everything again straight and mm-hmm. um, so like I have to learn how to go to social events and not get off my face and I need to learn that you know if I'm feeling sad or like I'm worried about something that I immediate thought is um, you know used to be just slam the um, checkout button you know get high get away from it mm-hmm. and you know if that's every aspect of your life relationships your work you know and learning to look after yourself, learning to say, you know what, I'm, like, I'm going to have to actually look after myself because no one else is going to do that. Yeah. Nice. So, um, I guess, um, over 14 years, um, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this before I came on, you know, there was lots of positive things about drugs. Um, and about my addiction, uh, it, it kind of harnessed something in me because I guess the whole time that I was grafting and kind of doing this sort of social networking and sort of doing bits of dealing drugs and, and stuff, I was actually using loads of skills that I didn't know that I could use in a different way. Mm-hmm. So, um, obviously sort of protecting my identity a little bit. Um, I won't say what my job is, but for the last 14, 15 years, I've been working with vulnerable people in one way or another. So I've worked with homeless people for a long time, uh, young homeless people, often with chaotic drug problems, uh, Mm -hmm. mental health problems, injury diagnosis problems. Um, And, you know, I still do that now. I still work with very vulnerable people, people who are kind of clustered victims in in a certain way. Um, And really all the skills that I was using to do drugs and sustain an addiction were completely transferable because I had to be someone that could communicate well, 
have empathy for people and be able to sort of strategize and and sort of plan ahead and prioritize and all of these things were kind of capable kind of uh, professional skills that were just being completely uh, used in the wrong way. Yeah. So in some ways there was a lot of positives to um, uh, <laughs> being a drug user. It kind of brought me out of myself. It made me into something. Mm-hmm. And again, I say it's like a car crash, you know, um, you have to kind of go, right, you know, let's separate what is actually shit and what doesn't work for me. And when I, when I started to do that, I realized that there's something in my life from that behavior that I could actually use for a positive force that I could, you know, and that was really scary to me to think, well, right, so some people, some people find it hard to walk into a room and just sort of talk to people they've never met before. That was something that I could always do with drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found that I could do it without drugs as well. So, yeah. Cool. All right. All right. Well, we definitely have uh, some questions for you. Yeah. I'm going to turn it over to you, Eric. What do you got? All right. So kind of like going back to the start of your story, um, you know, you kind of talked about, and I, I'm sure, you know, things have changed, obviously, drastically with kind of like learning disabilities, like, you know, you were saying you have dyslexia. Um, mm. And, you know, you had to drop out, of, you dropped out of school at a young age. But, you know, how do you think that having a learning disability affected your self-esteem at that age? Mm. And then also, you know, a second part of that question is, how have you learned since then to overcome that learning disability? Um, well, to answer the first part, I mean, it absolutely destroyed my um, my self-esteem. Um, you know, I've um, had different sort of forms of therapy throughout my life. And, and, you know, in therapy, I described it as sort of, I, it's like, you know, like a horse race or something like that. Um, me and all my peers, we were all the same. And I was kind of in my class, I was kind of funny, I was good at football. I was kind of, you know, girls liked me. I, I felt like I was popular and I was valuable. And then all of a sudden when they started to introduce, um, you know, uh, reading and writing, it's like uh, it was the most horrible feeling. It's like, oh, there's something deeply wrong with me. Why can't I do this? Mm. Um, back in the 1980s, um, there was nothing set up, no provision for that. So uh, I very much got the message that I must be stupid. Uh, and there was something wrong with me, something very deep inside of me was wrong. Um, so they were really heavy things to carry around with me because uh, it was like, hold on, you know, how can I be good at football and how can I be funny and how can I, like, people like me, but I can't do this and there's nothing I can do. And really, you know, I spoke about it a bit in my podcast, but it was like really difficult because the teachers were looking at me and my parents were looking at me as if I had the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if I could say, oh, right, you know, it's, I don't know, like putting glasses on a kid and then they can see or something. Um, so, I mean, that really was difficult for me. Uh, and I, I think, it, you know, it must have played a part in my kind of choosing to go into drugs and, and alcohol it, shortly after that was kind of, well, I can't. I can't go to school and I can't be a mainstream normal person. I'm going to be something different, you know. Um, in terms of overcoming learning difficulty, I, I don't know. I don't think I've overcome it. Um, my job 
uh, you know, I've, I've got a, a good career, but it's all based around my people skills. It's all based around me being able to communicate with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I regularly, regularly get this taken out of me uh, for spelling mistakes. Um, I mean, I do it all the time with my wife. I sent her a text message last week that said, I really want to make bongs better instead of things better. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had to send a, a really important email out once at my work um, saying that um, I excluded some homeless people from a service due to a high-risk incident. And this went to, like, MPs and stuff, you know, really important people read this, mm-hmm. and I thought that I'd executed them uh, <laughs> instead of excluding them. Oh, um, man. So I, yeah, I, so, you know, I just... Um, I, the thing is, the dyslexia was in me when I was born, Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't learn to be dyslexic. It was, it was. I was born that way, and you can't, you can't change it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of like being dyslexic. It's, it makes me, me. I, you know, yeah. it's, sometimes it gets me down a bit because, like, you know, I've got like a ten-year-old daughter, and she, she can, she can outread and outwrite me now. So that's a bit kind of strange when you're a dad and you, you know your daughter's like nine and bringing home homework that is more complex than my brain can handle and mm. um, but for the main part i guess you i sort of you know you adapt your life to play to your skills you know i'd never be able to work in an office and just type i'd never be able to write big long reports or you know do that um, I, I i guess i i fully trust my intuitive kind of feelings and 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 it's guided me well in in a lot of ways, you know. Mm-hmm. It's why I'm also drawn to audio as a as a format, obviously. Because um, mm-hmm. sitting down and writing a book or or something like that would be just overwhelming for me. So what I love is being able to just talk into a microphone and express myself by direct uh, communication. If I try and write, something happens from my brain to my hands, and it, I can't get the letters out and nothing makes sense when I write it so um, I guess you yeah I don't know if you overcome it I think you you learn to live with it yeah. sounds like a pretty show but hmm. yeah I never even thought of that like and people in recovery with some sort of learning disorder being more receptive to podcasts yeah huh that's amazing alright um <laughs> alright and you said I think, I think just on, just on, on that note with a podcast, I think definitely, um, if you think most most people that are in the grips of drug addiction, particularly kind of night time and the end of the day, people sort of black out or they have a last hit or, or they do something, you know, they dose themselves up to get through that bit where it's like, right, I can go to sleep now. Mm-hmm. And for me, in recovery, one of the one of the fundamental things that really helped me 14 years ago, it's no coincidence, I started to listen to um, like comedy podcasts and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that was one of the things that was like, yeah, you know, I'm not alone uh, because that was a big fear for me uh, and a reason to get high was, shit, I'm on my own. I don't like being, being alone when I'm going to sleep. And, you know, for 14 years now, I've had my headphones in and listened to pretty much anything, you know, to get that feeling of, um, not being alone, which drugs used to give me. I think you're definitely on something like that. Yeah. All right. Um, that's a great point. Um, so when you said, like, you sort of, like, came to that realization that, like, you just couldn't 
you couldn't fucking live like that anymore and you couldn't continue with your um, life revolving around like um, drugs. Uh, did you consider going to treatment? Like, had you heard of like different treatment centers or like, um, how did, how did that process go? Like, did you just strictly like try and like do it on your own self will, or did you like consider treatment and maybe it wasn't available? Um, well in England, um, at the time, um, you know, there's, there's obviously, um, well-known, you know, forums, and I've, I've been to meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't stick at meetings. Um, I didn't, I didn't find it worked for me. If anything, I ended up wanting to help the people <laughs> that I met at meetings, mm-hmm. I, and and kind of thinking, oh, you know, shit, you're really fucked up. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I, I did get something out of it because I went and I thought, you know what, like I'm, I'm not as bad as that. Yeah. Um, which. I, I mean, I've said that to people before, and they'll really judge me for that, and they say, oh, that was you being in denial, you know, mm. because you didn't want to admit you're an addict. But I was like, no, straight hands up, man. I was, you know, I, my mental health was terrible. My physical health was terrible. I lost relationships. I, you know, I, I lost a lot through being a, a, an addict, mm-hmm. through addiction behavior. Um, but um, I, I've tried, I've tried lots of things, you know, um, Little things that I did is, you know, they're all going to sound like cliches, but, you know, I started running and, and that became like a great thing for me. It was like, I think in addiction, my experience with being an addict is, and most addicted people that I know, there's a kind of black and white thinking, you know, it's like things that are either really good or really shit or it's got to be yes or no. Mm. And that's, you know, like using drugs is like that. It's that decision to say, yes, I'm going to use. That's going to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and running was like a really positive thing for me. Like, that's definitely in the good column. Yeah. There's nothing bad about running. Uh, but then I find myself running like literally like three or four miles a day every day for six weeks. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like in pain in my legs and I'm going fuck this is an addiction yeah. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. fuck I'm addicted to running uh, you know I had this crazy moment I was running like and I you know people say this when you start exercising you can think clearly and I was thinking I'm literally running away from my problem literally Ooh. running away yeah you know as I'm running I this is I thought I had something healthy and I managed to turn it into an addiction Mm-hmm. I managed to get to the point where it was like, I get twitchy if I haven't gone for a run and I, I feel bad. Uh, but essentially, you know, in moderation, running is good for me. Yeah. And I, I, I sought out therapy and, and sort of self-funded my own therapy. Uh, so I, I saw, um, you know, psychotherapist on and off uh, for kind of three or four years. Um, and I think that was fundamentally the thing that... Um, that allowed me to kind of stay with that decision to stop using drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an absolute shock to me when I first sort of realised how therapy can work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's ridiculous. You're paying someone to listen to you. Uh, and in England, in, in kind of my upbringing, that was very much frowned upon, as in that's something that kind of intellectual rich people do, you know? Yeah. Um, I came from a culture of, you know, 
sort yourself out, you know, but you don't need someone else to tell you how to change your life. Mm. But I absolutely recommend that uh, anybody who is thinking about stopping drugs or is struggling with an addiction, that they seek out some kind of talking therapy. Uh, for me, I wouldn't have been able to have sustained being um, drug-free without um, having someone who I knew that I could totally go and offload on and someone who would reflect back to me things I said and someone who would challenge me and someone would notice patterns and help me sort of um, give names to these feelings because I think often people that are in drug addiction, me particularly, I was just overwhelmed with emotions and feelings and I didn't know what they were. You know, they just felt like unstoppable forces. Now, you know, and over the last 14 years, I can identify anxiety and I can identify depression and I can mm. identify when I'm at risk of making a bad decision or, or, or that, you know, like with the running, I was able to go, right, this is becoming something that I'm having less and less control with. Um, so there's, there's that and, you know, it's a lot of sort of being a little scientist and trial and error and, you know, um, literally uh, finding things to spend your money on um, that aren't drugs. So, uh, yeah. you know, getting into vintage finals, you know, uh, it's amazing how many times you meet someone who has been uh, in the grips of addiction who's now like an epic mountain biker or, you know, they go bowling or they, they started Morris dancing or they're in a darts club or something. Mm -hmm. I think you have, you have to try things. Um, you know, I, I tried doing all sorts of shit. And I tried being an actor, I did volunteering. Uh, I tried being uh, a singer in a band. Um, I nice. tried writing, you know, I tried traveling. I tried different forms of work. I tried getting into lots of relationships. Uh, and looking back, you know, not many of them actually worked, but it was a much more uh, honorable life uh, making genuine mistakes and being a human being and going, oh shit, you know, that relationship was really bad or mm -hmm. you know, what was a shit thing. <laughs> you yeah. know, why, why did I think I could sing? Um, <laughs> but it was, it's much more authentic to go, all right, I tried that and it didn't work. But now I know that I'm not that. Yeah. Um, so kind of ticking things off your list of things that you shit at, I think, or, or, or things that don't work for you. Mm -hmm. It's much more authentic than never trying and being scared of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got a short, quick follow-up question. So you talked yeah. about uh, getting into, like, vintage vinyl. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay, so what's your most prized vintage vinyl that you've collected? Um, I've got a couple. I've got, um, I've got Nirvana um, uh, when they played in England. Nice. Um, on vinyl, and I've also got my most prized one is because um, I've actually got uh, the Who uh -huh. um, live live in Leeds. I've got that on vinyl, and I don't know how much it's going to be worth at some point. But I've actually got their Rider, so you know, like their um, what drinks they wanted in the chill out room beforehand and stuff. Yeah, so there's like a list of like Pete Townsend, like what is this and what you know. Um, uh, that's cool. All the different kind of requirements and stuff. That, um, that's so, awesome. Yeah, I don't actually ever let that out of the cupboard, really. <laughs> it stays there. It's, it's, it's one of the kind of maybe morbid things, but it makes me feel very secure in life knowing that I've, I've got that, you know. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Cool. 
All right, over to Eric. All right, so um, so this question is kind of uh, you. I mean, you started at a really young age. Um, I mean, not really. Like, I mean, kind of like we both started young too. Yeah. So, but you know, there's people who start young. Then there's people who kind of start like around the college, you know, early twenties time. And there's people who start later. And like, I was always grateful for being someone who started young and was able to kind of, you know, figure it out and enter recovery at a somewhat younger age. He's British. It's called university, um, not college. So, what, yeah, whatever, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. um, are you grateful for kind of like, you know, addiction was probably going to happen no matter what, right? Like if we go off that mindset that like addiction's in us and it's going to happen, are you grateful that it happened when you were younger? Um, and that you started young and then were able to overcome it at a younger age instead of like having it start later and affect your life, you know, at a different time. Um, yeah, I guess I am. I mean, I, I never pay any kind of mental energy to that thing of like, are you born an addict or, you know, is addiction, uh, in your genes. I, I don't care if it is or if it isn't. I just know that I was going to be an addict. Mm-hmm. And there was no two ways about it. Um, I feel incredibly lucky because, and, and I feel grateful because um, not only have I managed to, uh, you know, be drug free for such a long time, I've managed to actually have a career where I have these moments and interactions with people whose life is still completely destroyed. And I see, you know, people who, just so mentally unwell and they're just punishing themselves with drugs and I'm you know the, the times when I kind of reflect and think fuck man I was lucky I'm you know I'm so grateful that I'm not like that um, and then I, I equally don't pay that any for um, I don't know if that's something that was in me to stop using I don't know I don't know where it came from so grateful it did and mm-hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, uh, I, I've seen people who literally, they've lived great straight lives, you know, they've raised kids, they've had careers, you know, they've been sort of pillars of society and, you know, really what you'd think is sort of rounded, grounded people literally have their first drink when they're like 55, 60 and they're all blown alcoholic within months. I mean, you know, like getting a license taken away from them and losing a business, like, mm. you know, just literally rolling around with no clothes on. And, you know, I, I fuck, I'm, I'm glad that that's not going to happen to me. I'm glad that whatever happens in my life when I'm older, I'm not going to be suddenly struck by something like that. Yeah. All right. Um, that actually leads, like, sh- uh, straight into, like, my question. Um, how has, like, a difficult past... How is that, and like dealing with addiction and now coming into recovery, how has that like helped form who you are today and uh, like how you've grown from then until now? Um, in terms of um, how, it's, how it's helped me grow, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I, I guess... I think myself, I can only really talk about myself, I think mm-hmm. knowing that I have the capability to be an addict and knowing that I 
because I think you, you don't ever stop being an addict. You don't stop thinking like one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just stop behaving like one. Yeah. Uh, and so I, 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 I think I've got quite a, a strong amount of willpower and it's probably verging on stubbornness. Mm-hmm. Because I think a big part, a big part of me stopping drugs was that I was so curious to see what I could do with my life. If that, that was the thing. I was so curious to say, you know what? What, what if I do this a different way? And I'm still on that trip, really. Mm-hmm. So it gives me, it gives me great sort of hope and um, and kind of inner resolve to say, you know what? I'm still on this trip of of, of like. I know I'm not going to die <laughs> because I thought I was going to die. Yeah. You know, I honestly thought that I was, you know, probably going to die before I was 30. Um, and I didn't know how or, or when it was just be that one day I would go too far and I'd fuck up and something had stopped working. Yeah. Uh, you know, my heart would give up or I fucking pass out and bang my head or I, I don't know, I'd do something. Uh, and I guess, identifying with the opposite of that and going, you know what, what if it's not about dying? What if it's about living? <laughs> what if it's about, um, like, choosing to say, you know what, I'm not going to rob myself. I'm not going to cheat myself out of the possibility of, of many possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it, it's a very long-winded way of me saying it, but I, I think uh, keeping that that kind of inner strength and that, that, that one decision that was like, I'm not going to go that way because that would, it was like that would be unforgivable mm. to, to, to um, let my life end in that way. I'd be, even now talking about it, I feel so angry with myself. Um, I don't know, I might you know, end up doing pretty much nothing in my life of any consequence, but that's still going to be better than just fucking, you know, passing out one day and never waking up again. Yeah. All right. Awesome answer. Thank you. Cool. Uh, so this is my last question. So you kind of talked a little bit about this and, you know, how your job kind of relates to being of service. Um, but, you know, if you could kind of expand on that. Like, how has service to others, you know, played a role in your recovery? Um, and you answered a little bit about that, but I guess, you know, how important is service to you? and like helping others? Um, well, for me, I realized that, I realized it's like I said, I had all of these skills that I developed through using drugs and through maintaining a habit. Um, but it felt like I had to use them for some good. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I started off as like a volunteer I literally volunteered at like a young homeless shelter in Nottingham and I was there as a volunteer for about three months and then they said, hey, you know, you should go to the job when it ends up and they got me a job. Five years later, I was managing a homeless project with like 40 chaotic homeless people. Uh, you know, so I, I really went to town on that. You know, I went from volunteering thinking maybe I'll be good at this to, sort of, you know, I had people that were, full-blown heroin addicts and chaotic substance misuse uh, people kind of I was responsible for their for their lives you know someone ODs on my watch sort of thing um, and harm minimization and, and uh, you know trying to guide people into 
uh, engaging with services and, and, and stuff like that. Um, the only thing that I can tell you really is, is it, it was all very intuitive. I used to talk to people and they kind of used to say to me, did you use the U? And I was like, yes, I did use in the past. And they were like, ah, oh, that's why you're like, you know, you're a dude, I can talk to you. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I am a dude, but I'm also the fucking manager of this project and if you don't fucking comply with this, I'm going to kick you out mm. because everyone deserves a chance. This is your chance. So I had this kind of um, really... Um, good connection with people where you know they used to say that you know they couldn't they couldn't bullshit me because i mm. kind of been there you know so i would listen to someone for half an hour say oh you know the reason is because my dad abused me and this happened and that happened and this happened and i used to say look man you know everyone has a story but right now you are here with me and you have an opportunity and i will fucking i will help you i will you know this service is here to give people opportunities and if you are transparent with me even if you fucked up tell me about it mm-hmm. um and things will get better but if you if you don't be honest with me and you tell me that you know that you went out and you got mugged and really spent all your money on heroin then you know you, if you can't help yourself i can't help you um mm-hmm. i guess yeah again being sort of very long-winded um it was good for me, uh, but I, I, I eventually took a step back from being quite so directly involved. Um, and I sort of now I do more sort of campaigning, kind of um, sort of awareness raising and sort of more networking. Uh, because I think if you are going to work face to face with addicts, I think you know it is extremely draining and. Mm. Um, it can take a lot of energy out of you. So I think anyone that does choose to do that, particularly if you're a former addict yourself, you have to be very careful with how much you're going to give back. And you have to be on an even footing with it where you're not doing the running thing, you know. That's like, <laughs> you're not like, you know, you're right, so you've not used for maybe two, three years or something. And then hold on, you're you're spending all of your time helping other people's addictions. That can become a problem, you know. Mm. Uh, but I think everything um, in moderation, and I think you know, it, it's a very honourable thing, you know, that human beings have the capacity to open their hearts and their minds and say, you know what, I I want to try and help somebody else. But there's so many people out there that. What that feel like that, but actually aren't any good at it, and and uh, I think you should be very careful if, if you're a former addict going to work with people that have addictions. I think you need to have a proper kind of um, plan in mind for why you're doing it, how you're doing it, how long, and where is it going to take you. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so there you go. Sorry, that didn't sound very positive, did it? But I, I think it no, I, I agree, man. No, yeah, it, it's it. That's a very practical answer. Like, yeah, like you don't want to sugarcoat like something that's it, it's it's a risky business. Like it really is. Like because we're dealing with our own emotions and our own thoughts as long as well as somebody else who's struggling. 
And yeah, and if you just keep pouring out and pouring out and pouring out, you got to have something filling your cup back up. Otherwise, you're, you like you said, you're going to come home, you're going to be emotionally drained. You can be down on yourself if, if like, because not everybody's going to stay clean, to be, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And when you work with somebody so hard and you, and like, because you're passionate and like you do care, um, and it doesn't work out the way you want it to or you expected it to, it can be, it can be defeating. So no, that, that was a perfect answer. Like it's not the, the, the addiction field and like the mental health field and the service, like true human service industry or not even necessarily industry, just human services um, is risky and it's not always positive. So yeah, you got to be, it's like being a doctor or being a nurse. Like sometimes people are going to die. Um, you're not always going to be able to heal everybody. So no, that, that was a that was a really great answer, man. Yeah, I, I mean, I came to the point of obviously being in a managerial uh, kind of role, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I had to do was read people's job applications when we advertised for a job. Um, you know, for like a support worker, and my kind of golden rule was. The, the line that I hated the most in a job application was, I think I'd be good at working with homeless people because I was homeless myself once. <laughs> that just used to irritate the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it's very judgmental, but uh, I would interview people and I, I would genuinely find the people that were, were trying to um, help homeless people because they themselves have been homeless, which were the people that I didn't want anywhere near uh, the homeless people that I was charged with the care of. Hmm. I actually wanted people who were ambitious and wanted to um, develop their skills, you know, their people skills and their strategizing and their, you know, capacity to manage risk and to, um, you know, put like um, skills in places like de escalating and, uh, you know, using professional skills. So, yeah, I, I, I used to tread very carefully around anyone that, that yeah, I'll, I'll do this because it's happened to me, so therefore I can do it. Mm. Um, which I'm aware, I'm aware it sounds a bit kind of um, uh, uh, hypocritical because there's me, a former user, sort of in that position, making that decision about people <laughs> who shouldn't be in their care. But, you know, um, I, I, I think that that does, um, it does bear some thought. Yeah. All right. Well, this is my last question as well. Um, you know, uh, he, like it, we believe here, at podcast recovery that there's um, there's infinite numbers of ways to get clean and stay clean, and not all of them are found in a fellowship or found in a book. Um, and it's not necessarily a program that you have to follow and it with black and white rules. Um, and me personally, I believe that, uh, the human connection is probably the most important part of recovery. And you talked about that a lot in your story, like going to therapy, working with people. So how important is, uh, the, your human connection with other people, um, either helping other people or getting help for yourself versus necessarily reading something out of a book? Um, I mean, for me, it's massive 
um, I've I've read a lot of um, uh, books on addiction. Mm-hmm. I've studied uh, addiction. Like I had to to sort of for my job. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to train and sort of understand more about how you know the cycle of addiction works and relapsing. You know, the clinical kind of model of it. You know, it's like. Um, but for me, it's like you know. It, to, to me, it's it's all about how we behave, how we treat each other, how mm-hmm. we listen to each other, how we love each other, how we care for each other. Um, and you know, a lot of that shit you can't learn from a book. Yeah, uh, you have to live it. And so, you know, look, the, the world is flooded with life coaches and. Uh, gurus and people who say follow me I've got the I've got the answer um I, I could never be someone like that um I was sort of referred to earlier I've probably got a very stubborn streak in me mm-hmm. um so I, I, I have a kind of tapestry and collection of things that give me hope and you know it's simple basic little things like I I want to be kind because it makes me feel good but I don't expect anything in return. Yeah. Um, and I have a hard time with kindness myself. I don't like people being kind to me. If I ever get compliments, I dismiss them, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got a small locked away part of my brain for compliments that I access uh, very irregularly. Um, the human side of it is so important, you know, because everybody is a role model for somebody else. Even if it's just five minutes, you know, it's like just little things like making eye contact with people, smiling at them, letting them know that you care, that, you know, um, because when you're an addict, you are an island, you know, Um, addict is self-defeating behavior, it's selfish, it's kind of towards sort of narcissism, isn't it? You know, of like, you know, I'm going to get high, I'm going to disconnect, I'm going to go to my special place. Mm. When you spend a lot of time there and you come back off that island, you realise that actually you need to connect with other people because they're they're your barometer for how you're doing in life, you know? And and I think even if you've got absolutely no kind of self-esteem and you feel shit about yourself and useless or or ugly or any of those horrible words, you're still going to have to spend time with other human beings and how you how you treat them and how you respond to them. That is going to shape the rest of the world. Mm. <laughs> and um, so it's hugely important to me. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I've ever really studied or read or received information that has completely formed. A way of life for me and I don't know if I'd ever be able to um, so I kind of uh, it's self-generating you know it's like a one-man band for me I'm like if I, if I keep being good to people and I can look after myself and I can look after other people and that has to be better than the alternative <laughs> mm-hmm. which is not looking after myself and then not being able to look after other people um, I mean I, I don't know it's just coming to my mind and I don't want to get political at all, but, um, you know, uh, I listened to the audio book of, uh, Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't know what you guys' politics are, uh, and we won't get into it, but he, 
at the end of his um, audio book, there's this speech that he gave before his president, and um, it's a very impassioned speech, and he was a great orator of arm, but he said these words, he said, you know, I'm my brother's keeper, I'm my sister's keeper. Hmm. And I was like, fuck, you know, that, that, those, those words resonated with me. Because yeah. I thought, that's the kind of guy I want to be. You know, I want to have my sister's back, I want to have my brother's back, I want them to know that uh, they can come to me and that I, I will defend them, you know, and I will look after them, I'll love them. Uh, I thought that was hugely powerful for um, someone who's going to be possibly the most powerful person in the world to, to just say something as basic as that. And uh, and clearly that resonates, and resonated with me just for an audio book. And, yeah. Um, I think that's a, that's a good motto for how things you like, you know. Absolutely. All right. Fantastic. Great cool. answer. I think Eric, um, Eric has a Twitter question yeah, for you from one of our fans. So okay. this is going to be from, this is an easy one, so it's not hard. Oh, this is uh, Own Sobri- uh, Sobriety. So at Own Sobriety. Okay. Um, and this is actually a question I think we were talking about the other week too. Um, but they kind of, you know, and this is for everybody, this is more of a topic. But the pros and cons um, of, you know, either being anonymous or putting your addiction out there. Um, so, like, what are the pros and cons of keeping or, you know, giving away your anonymity um, to the public? So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm anonymous, technically. Yes. Um, there's a little, mm-hmm. you know, there's a little rabbit trail. Like, there's a trail. You can figure out who I am. It's pretty easy, actually. Um, but I, Nobody cares. Yeah, but you're, <laughs> but David, I know you're, uh, yes, I'm very you're open. open. Mm-hmm. Um I'm out of the closet. But yeah, I mean, what what do you guys what do you guys think of like, you know, from a pros and cons perspective of, you know, keeping your anonymity or, you know, being public about it? Um I, I relate to that in the way of um I don't know if you guys know Ricky Gervais. Yeah. Comedian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course. But you know Ricky Gervais, he does those photographs of himself on Twitter in the bath. You know, and he puts stuff on it like, look at me, I'm a fat cunt. <laughs> uh, and then he'll, he'll really articulately then the next day in an interview say, if I do that, then no one else can do that to me. Oh, wow. You know, so it's like I, I kind of identify with that. I mean, the main reason that I wanted to share my story was because it was getting tired in my head and I didn't like the fact that it only existed in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, my friends and family kind of know stuff. Um, but I wanted it to be like a real thing that was separate to being in my head. And when I did it, I thought, well, you know, people, this is like, you know, I've had a few moments. Like I had, I had like um, someone that I went to school with. I've not been for like 30 years or something. Find me on social media and say, I love your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know all that shit happened to you. And then he sort of like, I was like, hey, man, how are you doing and stuff? And he's like, yeah, you know what? Some of the stuff happened to me. And it sounds like the cheesy kind of thing that um, anyone who's created something would say, but just one little interaction like that tells me it's totally worth it because mm-hmm. if I hadn't done the podcast, he wouldn't have got in touch with me. And at the end of it, I come back to this thing of like, you know, he's, He's this guy that I, you know, I used to climb trees with and kind of 
against a snowball fight. And that's all he ever was in my mind. And then because I've shared my story, he's like, you know what, I had a fucking hard time and, you know, shit happened in my life. And I'm like, dude, you're here, you're cool, you're listening to my podcast, you know? And then he's like telling me about his life. And, it, you know, I, I'm, life is way too short to worry about what other people think. Mm-hmm. Um, if, someone wants to, if someone wants to be mean to me, cruel to me, or troll me, they're going to do it anyway. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> no, nobody is uh, immune to criticism or to, um, to assholes. You know, people's bad behavior. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. So um, I say kind of fuck them in advance by saying, <laughs> you, you know, this is me and I own my shit. So, um, you know, it's like if someone was like, oh, that, you know, someone had a critique about my podcast or, or criticized some of my stories, then I can say, well, yeah, I put it out there for everyone to listen to, so I accept that, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I think if, you, if you're going around in your life kind of giving, portioning the truth out or, you know, stuff like that, you'd end up living like a politician or, or like, you know, not being authentic and worrying about what people think of you. Yeah. I just think fuck them all, <laughs> fuck them all, yeah. um, and you know, be be who you are going to be, and um, not what. Don't try and be uh, someone that exists to kind of please what other people think. You know, mm-hmm. there's so much of that shit in the world, and you know, I can see it in, in young people a lot. You know, that you've got to constantly be fucking watching to make sure you're cool, you're legit, all your credentials down, the way you look, dress, you social media and all that shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm doing something completely the opposite. I, you know, I'm openly telling people that I shit myself at the side of the road and that, like, I, you know, got arrested and that I, you know, fell asleep on top of my mother's grave and had to be, you know, dragged away by the police and went to drug dealers' houses that I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, because all of that shit is part of a real story. Um, and I'd rather that it was out there and that people can say what they want of it rather than just me thinking, oh, yeah, that's what's happened. I'd rather it be out in the public and that it's like, I don't know, it's the way they made it separate to me. It helped me move on a little bit further towards this trip that I'm on, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. And I'm, I'm definitely in the same boat with you. Um, I'm a person, I'm all about pretty much full disclosure. I'm anybody who looks at my social media footprint and uh more of the podcast recovery footprint is gonna have a lot of my my face and my name on it and uh i'm really okay with that because just like you said anybody who's gonna judge me about like uh, what i've done that's out in the open we all we're all humans like we we all have dirty little secrets and shit like that but Minor, for the most part, like, are out in the open, and like all all the dirty parts of my life, they're out in the open air. And any anybody who wants to talk about them, like the times I got arrested, the things I did, all that stuff, I'm more than happy to do it because just like you said, it makes me authentic. I'm somebody who, like, I have tattoos down my arms. I have plans for a lot more. Um, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I'm not afraid to cry in front of people, um, even though Eric makes fun of me for it. It's incredible. Yeah, so 
I'm I'm not somebody that likes to hide who I was because, again, when I put that stuff out in the open, people can relate to that. There's somebody who needs to hear what I went through um, and needs to see what I've been through in order to maybe have their own realization or have, like we talked about today, that extra person to connect with and feel like they're not alone. Because, like you said, like addiction is all – it's an island. And you, you go off to your little island away from everybody else, but eventually, like, you, you come back to reality. And if I can come back to reality and and hear somebody else's story who wasn't afraid to say those things, then I, I can feel a little bit better about myself. And, uh, and it's just about living, like you said, like with the Barack Obama thing, being that uh, change that we wish to see in the world and not hiding in the shadows because recovery doesn't recovery wouldn't work if we were all by ourselves like somebody has to be open and like i understand the the stigmas and whatever in the business or political world but um i I think the more people that get out there and say that like we were human at one point and we're still human and we made mistakes, but now we're growing from them and becoming better people and helping other people become better people. Then I think the stigma will start to lose its power. Cool. Yeah. I mean, there's a really funny sort of chain of events in politics in Britain. Um, a few months back, there was a, you know, there was a, a, a race for the new leader, the new prime minister, and mm-hmm. there was kind of four or five candidates, uh, and they all got ousted um, for using drugs. So it's all headline stuff. One of them had done coke before. One of them had smoked opium at a wedding uh, somewhere. And I was just absolutely shocked at, like, the, the criticism and, like, that it's a bad thing. And I, I was saying to my wife, I was saying, like, I, I would actually want my prime minister to have done drugs. I think that's a good thing in some ways that they could be open about it and say, you know, I try drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm a human being. Why the fuck is there this stigma about it? As in, oh, fuck, he did drugs, so he can't be trusted. Yeah. It's like fucking Winston Churchill was a massive cokehead and he fucking single-handedly, like, fought off Hitler for months. Yeah. You know? Um, it's like... People that have addiction are fucking strong-willed, talented, creative, mm-hmm. compassionate, loving people. Yeah. Um, and there needs to be a, a recognition that, you know, it's a type of behavior and, yes, it's an illness. Um, and it can get really fucking bad, but I, I'm not having any of this shit about anyone that's type, like done drugs is tainted or something like that. Yeah, I agree. Eric, did you want to answer it at all? I mean... I guess from my perspective, yeah, like, that's there what I wanted. The- is a point where, yeah, I would like to eventually be more open about it. Um, being in, I guess, the business world, there is certain, there is a stigma, and I can't be fully open with people um, without you know being looked at a different way. Um, you know, it's it's just something I'm personally not. W- like able to disclose at this moment. Um, once I have some more tenure at my you know current company, and you know, I might feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. I might feel more comfortable, you know, letting certain people know. Um, you know, just out in like the real world, like you know, sometimes like I don't really give a fuck, right? But yeah. like 
for, you know, for the, like, job and stuff like that and career, I mean, it does matter sometimes. And that sucks. And, like, I want to, like, you know, help end the stigma just, like, at this current moment in time, it's just not the right time for me Mm -hmm. to, like, you know, make that public. I think the really hard thing is is that we live in a world where there's good addicts and there's bad addicts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that needs to change. It's like there's there's good good people with mental health problems and bad people with mental health problems. It's like mm-hmm. if you look at someone like Elton John, you know, who's just done this Rocket Man film, uh, he's portrayed as like a saint for for not being an addict. Uh, you know, he's got kind of like holy status uh, mm-hmm. for it. Um, but the moment that someone kind of falls off the wagon or has a relapse or fucks up, they're a villain. Yeah, yeah, and that needs that needs to change because it's like you know, look, if you've got a mental health problem and like you stop taking your meds and then you know there's some kind of behaviour that starts, uh, you go, well, of course they're going to behave like that. They weren't taking their meds, mm-hmm. you know. They need those medications to function. And if an addict goes 14 years like me, if I you know, uh, under the wrong circumstances, went out and decided to go on a massive cocaine binge for however long it lasted. The thing that I would need most is love and compassion and understanding that I did that because I was not behaving the way that I want to. Mm-hmm. And that I was, I made a bad decision or I, I, you know, I fucked up. But the way that we live, it's so black and white. It's like you're either a saint or you're a fucking nightmare you know you're mm-hmm. oh look at this guy you know and uh, that's what really bugs me about the way that we treat people with mental health problems and drug addiction mm-hmm. but fundamentally it's about this thing of care and love and you know okay you fucked up but we're still here for you we still love you we still care about you yeah that's awesome yeah i love but, that mm-hmm. i i totally relate to what you're saying though man like you know if you're if you're in an industry or you know if you're in a place you know you have to play the game sometimes Mm -hmm. you know because you're thinking about your future your family your your future prospects so i think it's you know it's cool for you to you give people as much as you can trust them with maybe yeah so like you you said you had a podcast and everything like um you know where can people kind of find you and like you know check out your stuff um well uh yeah so it's um i'm on twitter uh days of my life podcast um, that's available on iTunes and uh, Spotify and all of that. Um, there's shows on a little break at the moment because I'm working on a different podcast, which is uh, more of a, a drama fiction thing called Room Podcast, which is hopefully going to get something out around Christmas time. Um, but uh, there's a whole load of uh, mo- new episodes of Days of My Life, of sort of me going through my 20s and... Um, uh, I think, like, at the moment, I'm up to being aged, like, 22. Uh, I was just setting off to go to India to go traveling uh, and kind of starting to get to the point where I was going to change my life and turn my life around a bit. Um, but, yeah, Days of My Life podcast, you can find me on Twitter and uh, all kinds of different search engines, I guess. Nice. Cool. All right. Nice. Well, we would like to thank you one more time for joining us today. We really appreciate it, man. Hey, thank you. It's been great. It's uh, great to talk to people. I'm still amazed that we live in a world where you guys are on the other side of the planet to me and we can talk like we're in the same room. Um, And I think you guys are doing great work. Um, It's really valuable and 
Um, I li- like I said, I listened to about 20 of your um, episodes in the build-up to this to try and get familiar with you guys. And um, I think, you know, you guys need to do some self-congratulations as well because um, it's brave what you're doing and it means something to people. Uh, and it's inspirational to have people out there that are uh, committed to this, you know, because that's what we were talking about, wasn't it? You know, looking mm-hmm. after each other, and I think that's what you guys are doing, you, you know, by sharing and including people. Um, I, I think it's a brilliant thing that you're doing. Thank you. Man. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Um, oh, that almost teared, that, <laughs> that almost teared me up. It hit me right in the heart, man. Um, we're going to give you a, a, a quick minute to talk to anybody who's out there listening, who's struggling, needs to hear that message of hope. What do you have to say to them? Um, I think if, if you're ever at that contemplation stage of, you know, I want to change my life or, you know, this is out of control or, um, you know, you're, you're, just, you're starting to think, you know, how long can I keep doing this? Or if you're like me, you know, you're actually afraid that you're going to die. You need to take some action, mm-hmm. you know. Um, action is better than no action. Um, you need to start identifying what it is that you are not going to be. So if you're, you know, as simple as I don't want to die, you know, just stay with that thought. Okay, so if I don't want to die... What does life look like? And if it's the smallest little window of, of, of blue sky or or being open to change, you know, if it's one phone call, if you make one phone call and tell a friend, a family member, or, you know, ring up, uh, some, you know, you have Samaritans over there, um, you know, just pick up the phone and start talking to someone. And I guarantee you that is better than staying where you are. All right. Cool. That was perfect. That was great. Here at Podcast Recovery, we're aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict, wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and Podcast Recovery is here to provide it. So follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, like, share, subscribe, join your friends, ask us questions. Um, Yeah, and more importantly, come be a speaker with us. It's a great time, and we'd love to hear you share your story with us. Uh, Most importantly, everybody out there, stay safe and stay clean.